0: Greetings, dear listeners. We have an excellent conversation for you today. We had our friend Luke Burgess on the show. Luke is Entrepreneur-in-Residence and Director of Programs at the Choka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship at Catholic University here in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of a fascinating and provocative book that you'll want to pick up after listening to the show. It's philosophical, but also really useful in helping explain the weird times we live in. Really worth your time. As always, the conversation is in two parts. The second, for paying subscribers. Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live/slash subscribe to join our family and get access to everything. On to the show.
1: We are very excited to have you. This has been a long time in process. I love this book because it's about desire. And I guess in some sense, everything is about desire. Uh, It's called Wanting, the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And you introduce this idea of mimesis, which sounds complicated, but we can get into it and hopefully it'll be digestible for people. In some sense, as far as I can tell, it's about the fact that we don't want what we want, we want what other people want. And it's this process of imitation that defines human desire. So we're dependent on other people in that really fundamental sense. There's a lot to talk about because you're drawing on the philosophy of a late French scholar, René Girard, who was a Stanford professor in his latter years. He's the one who really introduced and developed this idea of mimetic desire in considerable detail. He is pretty dense and difficult to read. So it's great to have someone like you who can share with the crowd um, what all this actually means. And the book is ambitious. And so you say in the introduction, the change you make is up to you, or at least it will be by the end of this book. That is that is heavy. You're telling us basically that our lives could very well change once we understand these principles of desire and apply them in our own lives. There's a lot to talk about, but maybe just for the layperson, how should they think about mimetic desire and what does it actually mean?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for the... Um... The intro, Shadi and Demir. Good to finally be with you. We we all live in D.C. mere um, blocks from one another, but alas, we're we're on Zoom today. Um, so good to be with you, and thanks for having the conversation. Um, well, let's just start off with what is mimesis. You know, mimesis is not a new idea or concept. Plato and Aristotle both spoke about it uh, thousands of years ago. Mimesis is a word that simply means imitation, but those philosophers spoke about it in the context of representation, um, namely in art, in, in music, in surface-level forms of imitation, speech. You know, it's the basis of education. It's how we learn cultural norms. So it's no secret, You know, we've known for a long time that imitation plays a fundamental role in human life. René Girard's contribution to this discussion was his insight that Imitation goes deeper than this imitation of representation or surface level things down to the layer of human desire. We actually imitate. The desires of other people even while thinking of ourselves uh, especially since the the enlightenment we have this romantic idea of ourselves as being these highly autonomous independent creatures who generate our own desires you know i want what i want because it's just simply um, what luke burgess at his deepest core his authentic self wants And Girard is saying, you know, wait a minute, we're social creatures. We live in a culture and in a context. And we are, in some sense, always mediating desires to one another, uh, whether we realize it's happening or not. And, you know, classical example of this anybody with kids might recognize this and resonate with it. If you turn 10 toddlers loose in a room full of 10 toys, 10 toddlers, 10 toys, the toys are equally cool for the sake of argument they will not each uh, pick up their own toy and entertain themselves inevitably they will gravitate, gravitate towards the same one and begin to probably to fight over it right and to um, actually reinforce one another's desire for the single toy so why that process of convergence of desire happens is at the heart of Girard's theory, and he called that mimetic desire. And it's it's a theory of culture, and it's a complex theory. Some would say it's a theory of everything. This is one of the strongest critiques of Girard, is that he he has like this really big theory of everything that actually claims to explain these hidden origins of human conflict and violence. And Gerard's kind of paradoxical claim is that we fight because through mimetic desire we come to want the same things. Even you know, we think of ourselves as different, but we're we're actually converging on one another's desires. Even people that we consider to be our rivals or our enemies, they too are in some way mediating our desires to us. And this goes back to the earliest pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis. You have you know, Eve doesn't spontaneously get the get the idea that the apple would be good to eat. That desire is suggested to her by the serpent. So she is, in a sense, imitating Cain and Abel. Right? Um, they want the same thing. They want recognition, and, they, and that brings them to conflict and, and the first murder. Um, and interestingly, you know, and that after that story of Cain and Abel, the, the first city is founded. So Gerard links this primordial mimetic desire and conflict that stems from it to the formation of uh, culture in terms of prohibitions and rituals that we use in order to manage out of control memetic desire. So I know that's a lot. You know, we, we can yeah. stay on any one of those aspects of the theory as much as we need to. But I wanted to kind of lay out the the implications of this because they apply to everything from uh, relationships, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time, to politics, to economics, um, to culture itself, to, you know, the reasons why there are trends and bubbles in the stock market. Um, so that's that's why Gerard's theory attracted me. I mean, I, I not only saw its explanatory power in the world around me to explain things that seemed irrational. So there was this kind of uh, pre-rational force of desire that did make a lot of things make sense. But more than anything, I saw it in my own life because I uh, am am a mimetic creature, like I think we all are. And I saw how easy it was for me to become fascinated by bright, shiny objects all around me through this process of mimesis that Gerard describes so well.
1: Yeah. So there is quite a bit here in this theory that I think lends itself to darkness. Um, there is the scapegoat mechanism, which you alluded to. And I think that it's interesting that Gerard has become more influential and more well-known in America in recent years, because I think people... There is a lot of darkness in our political life. and And certainly, the dark aspects of polarization, it is hard to understand polarization without some idea of desire and imitation. So I think it's very useful there. But it also makes me think that of Carl Schmidt, another um the Nazi jurist intellectual who has been, influential with his friend-enemy distinction. There are these dark ideas that have become, in some sense, rediscovered and popularized because they speak to our moment. Um, and I suppose one concern I have with this full, fully understanding mimetic desire and reading your book and reading Gerard's work um, to the extent that I have is it you can use it for ill. You can use it to manipulate people when you understand how mimetic desire works in your everyday life you can weaponize it in the second half of your book you try to turn more positive and you basically counsel people to not misuse this knowledge but in a sense you're giving us an entire framework to understand the world i don't want to overstate matters but it can it can be a very powerful tool for understanding other human beings but it is ultimately up to us to decide what we want to do with that knowledge.
2: Yeah, I mean, isn't that you know the case with any knowledge, right? That it can be used for good or for ill? You know um, you know, people have the agency to to decide how they want to use that knowledge. And to the extent that you think that Gerard is putting his finger on something true about human nature and culture, then you know that can certainly be used for um, you know, personal gain. Uh, I think there there are people out there right now uh, who are, um, I would call it, weaponizing mimesis, right? Who who know this theory very well, who are saying things in just the right way to drive the maximum amount of outrage and fear and engagement and some of them are becoming extraordinarily popular and wealthy within certain circles because of that weaponized mimesis. And I I think that's a huge concern of mine. Girard, interestingly enough, he he was full of these really evocative phrases that he would drop in all of his books and then never really explain what he meant by them. (laughs) Um, He, Used this phrase in one of his very first books, and he said, "I'm a political." Well, he didn't say he was. He was referring to um, the French novelist Stendhal and Flaubert and Tocqueville, and he referred to them as political atheists. Hmm. And in a sense, it's what that phrase means is is unclear. It's open up to interpretation. I've talked about this with a few of my friends, but um, he seemed to be implying that. When you see the mimesis and when you start seeing that, you know, much of our politics is a giant imitation machine. It's just one reaction following another reaction. And when you can gain some critical distance from that and from, you know, the sort of the, the mob mentality, it is possible to opt out of the game that the people that weaponize mimesis want you to play. Right, because it benefits them or their personal brand or whatever, and I I, I think Gerard was sort of using this term political atheist in a, in a positive sense, right? That maybe we need to believe a little bit less um, in some of these narratives and and in the power of politics to solve all of our human problems, including, including you know our limitations and sin. If you wanted to get theological about it. Um, so he, he always seemed to want to put things into perspective. You know, here's a force that I see in the world, is what I, I hear him saying. Um, the more aware you are of it, um, the better. But it's still, people will, will still weaponize it. And the more that we are aware of it, and it seems like we're more aware of it than ever before. Um, I've never heard anybody talking so much about this force. You would naturally expect Actually, um, people to sort of try to hack it, right? And that's that's been that's been my worst fear, right? When I I go on podcasts and it's like, well, what do we do with this with this knowledge? How do I use it? And that always makes me like kind of recoil. Because we we do live in this kind of world where we always, as soon as we gain a piece of knowledge, we want to learn what what we can do with it to gain power or to, to, to build wealth or whatever. And it's like, well, maybe this is something that's very serious and we need to just let it sink in and understand the ways in which we're maybe unhealthily mimetic in various ways in our relationships and in the way that we react and engage in dialogue. And hopefully use that to... Uh, transform the way that we engage in, in in our relationships.
0: So, so Luke, you know, um, I, I, you you alluded to it just now. You know, some people making gobs of money on this, um, and you know, uh, the the interesting part of the book, and I'll, I'll I'll fess up now to being far out enough out of the zeitgeist to not uh, to not have picked up on this earlier until I read your book. Uh, it's it's you're talking about Silicon Valley, um, you know, uh, you, you tell your story a little bit as a as an entrepreneur uh, of walking away from your from uh, from your 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 baby and finding a kind of freedom to that. But then you return and, and you know, your your discovery of Gerard um, is, is tied up in the early in the books with uh, Peter Thiel, who I actually I've never read Zero to One, um, and I, I didn't know that he had. Uh, uh, he had a you know a, a sort of uh, a mentee relationship. Did he study with him at Stanford? Is that is that part of it? Was he was he his student and, and disciple or just he he read and and uh, and learned of him at Stanford? What what's the uh, no? They, they were at the Stanford.
2: They were at Stanford at the same time. As far as I know, Teal was never actually in Gerard's class. But Gerard used to organize luncheons and right. small groups and sort of formed a community of disciples. And Peter was part of part of that.
0: So I mean, you know, you 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 interviewed uh, Peter for this, and you know, you you talk about it a little bit more, uh, but but Peter sort of disappears pretty early in the book, and then you you, you go on to talk about how these these uh, these forces, this understanding, and I do want to really spend some time talking about transcending it because I I, I think it's really interesting, and but uh, you know, I'd like to push you on that because I I I find it sort of hard to wrap my head around. But going back to Silicon Valley and how uh, this theory has, 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 uh, you know, helped, uh, Peter Thiel, uh, sort of conceptualize the way he approaches things. Could you say a little bit more about that? Um, you know, Peter Thiel's sort of looms so large in the public imagination at this point as either, uh, a heroic figure who's just seeing through all the bullshit or just some or a satanic figure who is who's figured it all out and he's, and we're and manipulating all of us. What, what do you think is the 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 main takeaway for him in how he's approached things uh, in, in learning uh, about how mimesis drives everything in our world?
2: Well, a quick clarification. So, you know, my introduction to Gerard did not come from Peter Thiel. Mm -hmm. even though I was moving in that world and and in the startup world. It came from an old um, priest in the hills of Rome while I was on a silent retreat. So just to be clear, Gerard has a a very broad uh, following, right, really worldwide. Um, I sort of connected with Teal much later in the early stages of writing the book because I knew of the connection and I read Zero to One. And I was intrigued because I read Zero to One and I was like, this whole book seems to be speaking about mimetic theory and taking insights from Rene Girard, but never mentions Girard. It obviously has to be pulling these insights from Girard. so my initial reaction was like, well, what the hell? Like, I need to ask him, like, what? what's going on here? And, you know, it's true. I, and I think he wanted to write a book that didn't uh, make it seem like he was, you know, th- that these ideas were overly reliant on one particular thinker. But there's it, it no mistake. I mean, it's heavily reliant on the ideas of Rene Girard. And you know he said when I talked to him that his decision to invest in Facebook was largely due to him seeing that there was this um, powerfully mimetic aspect to the way that Facebook worked. And I, I won't get in, into the, the specifics of that, but it, it's, it almost seems like an engine built to maximize mimesis. Now, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg didn't uh, intend it to be one, but, it, but Peter saw that it was. So, he, he, you know, he sort of said, I invested, I bet on mimesis. Um, in other words, I almost hear him saying, like, the mimesis is going to happen <laughs> um, either way. Um, you know, I might as well bet on it and make money from it, <laughs> okay? Um, that's, that's so, you know, he, he that was part of his decision-making process when, when he gave Zuckerberg his very first half a million dollars to, to invest in Facebook. You know, in that book, Zero to One, he, he I think he elaborates his, um, at least the way that he looks at economics um, and how, you know, we can tend to, you um, just be looking at the same things that everybody else is looking at, and, and miss all kinds of opportunities. And I, this, you know, this. So he's he's got his entrepreneur's hat on, right? And so many times, you know, entrepreneurs are just chasing the money. Uh, they see somebody else starting a particular uh, kind of company. Uh, you know, I don't know. They, they see Substack, you know, doing really well, helping people launch newsletters, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of copycats, and you know, that's sort of driven by some level of mimesis. So, you know, he, he definitely sees that that mimesis is, is destroys value creation because it causes us to miss opportunities to build things that need to be built because, you know, we're, we're, we're not looking there. We're, We're just looking to our right and our left and following the crowd, following the herd. So from, from an economic growth standpoint, that's not optimal. Um, from a, you know, and, and there's all kinds of you know trickle down effects from mimesis into all kinds of other fields, right? Like even in research, and you look at Alzheimer's research, um, there there was all kinds of money and grants and, and things going to one specific hypothesis, right, for a particular protein in the brain that was thought to cause Alzheimer's. For for decades, most of the research and thinking revolved around the one thing, and people weren't exploring other you know, other, other solutions, right. Or, or even looking at other ideas, right. So, you know, this, this happens in academia all the time. It happens in the economy. Um, and I would, uh, and I don't know what Peter's thinking, but I, I, probably happens in politics too. Right. Um, you know, we, we start, you know, once the conversation is direct, is sort of, um, demarcated along certain boundaries and lines, most people are afraid to talk about things that sort of don't that 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 fall outside of those outside of those boundaries. And you know, the people that admire him in that realm, I think, um, like that he is seems willing to um, to, to 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 go outside of the sort of mimetic. Uh, tracks in the snow and, and talk about other things for better or worse I mean, whether you agree with them or not that's what i that's what i think he he is doing when it comes to being aware of the where the mimesis is flowing
1: and so <clears throat> just to give some ahead, more Trudy, color to it i just want to go ahead chatting oh oh i thought that was an echo wait are you go having ahead. are you having issues no no i don't okay it's not there anymore okay i just want to make sure that you were okay Um, Yeah, we'll cut this out, don't worry, yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple examples that you raise in the book, just so listeners have a more clear sense of what this actually looks like in practice. You give the example of going to the bar and you had decided on your way to the bar that you wanted a cold beer, but your friend who's apparently like pretty cool and successful and I guess, you know, maybe makes more money or whatever, ordered a martini and then your desire literally shifted in real time and you felt a pull that you no longer wanted to order a beer you wanted to order a martini so i just wanted to mention that because that there are it's like literally something that comes up in a lot of daily uh, daily activities but also some more fascinating ones that I was only vaguely familiar with, there was something called the Dancing Plague in the 1500s where this young woman just started dancing in a really weird way somewhere in Italy. And people thought she was crazy, but then more and more people started following her dancing in this weird way and it spread like an infection. And then I don't know if this quite fits in, but it's it's definitely an episode that I, was, that I find fascinating and also very frightening where something called the Downtown Project that happened in Nevada, where um, three people who were involved in the project committed suicide back to back to back. I don't know if that is an example of, I get if that's mimesis per se, but anyway, those are just three things that really stood out to me because they're just remarkable when you think about them, maybe not the martini one, but certainly the other two. Um, and I'm curious if you want to just say something about this uh, about how suicide can spread because it also makes me think of a novel that i'm I'm reading right now, The Virgin Suicides, which is fiction. I don't think this something like this has ever really happened, but where five sisters commit suicide in in rapid succession. I'm sure there, I mean, five seems like a bit much to happen in one family. But the fact that something in a novel can actually be replicated in real life, at least to some extent, is really interesting. But I think what was happening in this novel, The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. But one sister sees the other sister like there's a kind of modeling and then you follow. And anyway, there's a lot there, but I I just be curious how you would take any of those examples and maybe expand on them.
2: Yeah, you know, the, the martini example, um, what I, I call the mimetic martini. I mean, at any bar you go to um, and you see somebody order a martini, almost in, invariably, like one other person at that bar is, is going to order a second one. <laughs> um, I, it seems trivial, but there's an important point to make there and it's how the stories that we tell ourselves about why we changed our mind and this is how memetic desire works you know it's never oh i'm you know i'm operating on memetic desire so i'm going to get a martini too it's this never sounds like that or feels like that um, what happens is i say it's very common to hear somebody say oh I, I didn't realize that i wanted a martini until i heard you order one i just realized that that's that's actually what sounded good to me i don't know why i thought a beer as if you know, I, I, that is what I wanted the whole time or something like that. And I just needed to hear you order it before me. That's exactly what Gerard calls the romantic lie, right? The romantic lie that our our, our desires are there's kind of a, a, straight line between us and the things that we want. And I just needed a reminder from you, that I wanted the martini. What's what's in fact happening is that I didn't want a martini, I wanted a beer. And and it my desire changed based on based on yours. So it's it seems like a trivial example, but it's it's most people can relate to this kind of thing happening. It, when it comes to uh, you know food, drinks, uh, uh, romantic interests are, are are very often mediated to us by by other people in terms of the strength of our attraction to people, right? So you know love love triangles. I mean, this has been a very old story. The greatest novels that have ever been written are about the way that various actors influence the desire of other people for other people. The on the suicide example, I mean, I think this is a uh, an important thing to talk about because uh, it, there does seem to be evidence that uh, suicide is um, mimetic in some way, that they seem to cluster in uh, certain uh, geographic locations, friend groups, and you know that raises some serious questions about the way that they're covered in the media. Um, And I I, I would say the same thing about school shootings. I mean, like, why, 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 why is this? You know, this this is a this this is a relatively new phenomenon, and the mimesis seems to be increasing, right? It's it's troubling, Um, and it's it would seem that some things are more powerfully mimetic than other things, and there's been some studies that have that have been done on social media. Uh, specifically on the social media named Waibu in in China, which is basically their version of Twitter, and they they found that uh, angry tweets—they're uh, not called tweets on on that platform. I don't know what they're called, but the but the, the angry statements, yeah, are they spread um, much faster than sentiments like gratitude or joy, uh, or, or or things like that. So it seems that conflict. Um, violence, anger, um, these dark forces for whatever reason, uh, tend to be more powerfully mimetic in some way. And I, and this is why I think, you know, evil itself is, um, it, we have to be very careful with, you know, you have to be careful about having a fascination with it because it's so powerfully, uh, mimetic, you know? Um, so, I, I just- uh, you know, I, 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 and this goes back to kind of the weaponized mimesis example that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. Um, if, if it's true that that is highly mimetic, then it's no wonder that it drives more engagement than the people that are out there actually trying to have difficult conversations with people.
0: I, I just hasten to throw in, uh, you know, all the furor over, over uh Transgender issues and the sort of you know the concerns about about uh, young people just copying and how you know statistics show it seems to cluster. I don't follow this stuff very closely, so I'm not going to wade into it and get in trouble out over something that's just not really uh, central to my life. But um, but yeah, just throw that <laughs> out as another as a, as another uh, example. Luke, you know the, the thing that that struck me especially about the beer example, um, and you just mentioned how Gerard um, characterizes it uh, as this romantic idea. Uh, you know, romantic idea of the self and 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 uh, and desire that there's a straight line. The what jumps out at me there, and it's something that I think we can probe to get to the second half of the book. Is is the question of uh, free will? Uh, is the question of uh, you know just how how that works in you know Gerard's framework, also in your framework, uh, which is you know Gerard inspired, but I think you know you've made it your own, and 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 some of the uh the the uh the conclusions you come to in the in the second half of the book what's what's how how free are we um obviously we can be driven to copy and i you know one of the the features of the book is you talk about how to understand mimesis and also how to you know try and break out of these sort of loops but i think it'd be just interesting to to get you to talk about sort of you know I don't know, not to get all highfalutin about it, but how, what's the metaphysics of, of sort of the individual and the individual's choice and will? Um, obviously there's something ingrained in our, uh, a lot of our enlightenment ideas, quite frankly, about this, this unconstrained free will, that, that you know, we are rational actors at the core, that is what, what makes us, and, and therefore that, that, that we will choices, and that is our will. Now again, that's not necessarily in any conflict with mimesis. It might be something that influences how we will something. And you know, you have these charts about you know the the uh, that it's through these models of of of, of uh, that we try to emulate that that influences our choices. But but talk a little bit about that. Uh, how how free are we?
2: Mm. Well, freedom. You know, freedom exists on a. Uh, Freedom is not a static thing, you know, like I have the same amount of freedom at all times in my life, right? I, I, in my opinion, I can uh, gain or, or lose freedom depending on the choices that I make. You know, um, you know, if I if I drink a lot every day, I'm less free to not have that next one, right? It's kind of the way that addiction works. So, you know, if you if you sort of transfer that over to, to just other domains of life, I think the same kind of principle holds. Um, we can be more or or less free, and I believe that we can uh, at least in understanding mimetic behavior and gaining some critical distance from it, we can be more intentional about the kinds of actions that, that we're taking rather than getting caught up in a kind of a mimetic movement. I think of mimesis like physics. I it's for me, this is the best mental model, you know, almost like getting caught in a riptide when you're, you know, swimming in the ocean. Um, you know, there are certain things that you can do when you're in a riptide that will, um, help you. Like, you know, actually uh, counterintuitively, like not trying to swim your way out of it against it and sort of, you know, uh, resting and waiting, right, and not reacting right away. Um, and I think the same is true with with kind of social mimesis as well. Um, so many people sort of buy into the romantic lie that what they're doing, um, they arrived at that decision completely uh, sort of in- independently. So there are and there are also different kinds of freedom in my view you know there's there's physical freedom you know if you're in prison you're you have physical limitations you're not totally free to go wherever you want there's psychological freedom and at the deepest layer i would say that there's such a thing as spiritual freedom which is related to to self possession you know there's some people that seem self possessed to the point where they can be in a room full of people or or a uh, you know in an angry in part of an angry discourse and for whatever reason they they um, it's it's not inevitable that they will sort of need need to uh, to, to imitate everybody else right where there's some other people that seem like they it's almost like they can't help themselves and it, I wonder if there's a there's a difference in a level of freedom there uh, the, the, when I think of this in the context of things like uh, cancel culture, I think one of the the most salient examples for me is uh, the example that Girard himself talks about, and I think this is analogous to some of the things that we see in our world today. He talks about the act of a a literal ritual stoning, which happened all the time in the ancient world, and, and unfortunately still does in some parts of the world today. And he talks about that as a mimetic process. And I think understanding that as a mimetic process is is really important, sort of understanding freedom. So, you know, he asked the question, he says, Well, why is the first stone so important? What is it about the first stone? And there's a very famous story in the Bible about this, you know, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Well, what is it about the first stone? The first stone is the only one that doesn't have a model. It has no model. Nothing has been cast before it. Um, Therefore, it takes more intentionality to cast the first stone. Um, The second stone has one model, and the third two, and so forth. And there's less and less intentionality that would seem to be required the more stones that have already been thrown. However, um, it is possible for a person to halt that sort of mimetic process, um, and in the in the story in the Bible, it was halted. Right, right? it was halted by Christ, um, and I, I I have to believe that it's possible to act. Um, in a way that is not deterministic, right? I, I don't believe that one need need be mimetic, right? That it is possible to, to be a part of a situation like that and to choose intentionally and with more reason and rationality uh, in that situation. Now, the re- one reason that people don't is, first of all, they they could be completely uh, sort of caught up in the in the reptide and in the mimesis, but a uh, uh, second and maybe equally if not more important reason is that they're very often uh, turned into scapegoats because they're the only one who who stands apart and now they've set themselves apart and now they're noticeable right they're they're different they're interrupting the process that everybody else wants to to occur so you know very often people just stay quiet and they and they shut up because it's easier and it and it's safer Um, in the whole second half of the book, I am actually arguing for. And I know that many people don't question whether there is such a thing as free will. Um, I am arguing that uh, we do have agency. We can lose. We can lose a lot of it. Technology may be um, eroding our agency in many respects. Uh, if I spend 18 hours a day on, my, on Twitter, I think I, I develop Twitter brain, and I probably do forget how to. Uh, speak to another person, and have you know a discourse like this. Um, but uh, I wouldn't have written the book, and I wouldn't be speaking about this uh, the way that I am if I didn't think that it was possible to to actually change our behaviors once we know what's going on.
1: So I don't know if you guys know this, but I was actually the victim of the scapegoat mechanism on Sunday.
0: I didn't, I did, I did not, not know that, Shadi. Tell you us. You know what happened on Tell.
1: Sunday. The you Eagles were, were playing. <laughs> oh, you know no. about the Here Eagles or a football team. I, I,
0: I, let me just say, let me just say, uh, I think our dear listeners know this. Luke, you may know, Shadi's from Philadelphia and he hates sports. And I, all I know, let me, let me tell a little side story about this. First, all I know about Philadelphia is that Philadelphia people are rabid, rabid about their teams. That's the only thing I know about Philadelphia. Uh, the only other thing I know is I got a text, Shoddy. From uh, oh. a, a, a mutual acquaintance of ours that linked to a tweet of yours. And he said, uh, Have me on the podcast uh, and I'll explain something, something to Shadi. I'm at the game right now. And I saw the text and I went to click, and your tweet was deleted. So clearly, you had got, <laughs> I, I just took from that that you had taken something that you had said, something uh, anti Eagles or something along the lines of, I'm uh, you know, I don't understand what you you people are on on about, and you must have gotten railroaded by your countrymen. Uh, and yeah. so you deleted the tweet uh, in order for greater acceptance and then watch the game <laughs> is from what I can tell. You're trying to like understand what football's about. What what part of that I get that wrong from my deductive reasoning there?
1: Yeah, I mean, to to um to humor the crowds, um but it was more than that. I wanted to make a good faith effort to show that I was repentant, <laughs> I took a picture of myself watching the Eagles game on my laptop, and I apologized to the people of Philadelphia for my sins. Anyway, th- w- what I did, <laughs> did I you put the, the Eagles double- jersey on though, Sean? No, God forbid. No, no, let's not go overboard <laughs> you need a hat. here. Birthday. But <laughs> what I, what I basically, you know, I said something along the lines: I was in Philly on Sunday, and it bothered me seeing all these people with Eagles jerseys. There's just something oh about. God. <laughs> I don't want to say too much, but I I tweeted something out saying like, you know, this is vaguely annoying to see people and I made oh I made god. some reference to football as a sport where people hit each other with helmets. Oh my god. And uh, there was a lot packed into the tweet and it went viral. I think it before I deleted it, I think it had reached more than a million impressions on Twitter. And the sports media in Philly got a hold of it and they were just oh like my god. Yeah, like Barstool Philly and Barstool Sports, which has a massive following, were like, "Who is this person? This might be the worst take ever," and stuff like that. Anyway, like I shotty
2: were you intentionally weaponizing Mimesis there for engagement? <laughs> you must have known.
1: <laughs> well, so I hadn't well, actually well, started mimesis, reading your right? book He's trying until then. After-
0: <laughs> yeah, you're trying trying to be trying to be a, an independent-minded leader, but brought brought to heel by the mob. It looks like. But yeah, anyway, exactly. go on, Shoddy.
1: But I think I think conformity also has its has its benefits. Like in retrospect, I can have that feeling. There was no reason for me to share that with the whole world on Twitter. Like it just didn't serve any purpose. And that's also what my mom told me afterwards. And I think (laughs) I have to be more careful about this. But basically I think that Philly fans, including people who like would never follow someone like me on Twitter, I'm getting all these messages on Insta, on Twitter from these Eagles fans. And they're just like like saying really mean things to me. And I think that they were able to coalesce around me as a scapegoat. And there was something almost um, cathartic in that process. So I, That's my sense of how the scapegoat mechanism works. But this was and more of like because a... the
0: Eagles won. You were expelled yeah, from, from expelled. your from your home city, <laughs> and and uh, having having expelled a, a a person like you, the Eagles triumphed.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. But I guess what I also like to get to maybe one of my potential criticisms of the idea of emetic desire is there are there are examples of the scapegoat mechanism in our own lives. And I just mentioned one, but. They're not as dark as I mean, at least in the in the context of a liberal democracy such as ours here in the U.S. You'd think that with mimetic desire and the darkness that's sort of implicit and explicit in Gerard's theory that we would see more physical manifestations of evil. We would see violence spreading like a wildfire. I actually think that it's somewhat remarkable how nonviolent America is, relatively speaking, despite the fact that we apparently as Americans hate each other so much and have these profound disagreements about foundational questions. We don't actually see violence spreading like a contagion and we don't see the scapegoat mechanism actually turning into, um, something real like you know as bad as it is to be attacked on twitter or cancel culture whatever these are not examples of mass killing so clearly there's something about our civilizational progress at least in america or other western democracies where a mimetic desire has been constrained and channeled and institutionalized in ways that make it much more manageable so i just i just wonder that if if the theory really, I mean, obviously we can point to all these examples of mimetic desire, but it's not as bad as Gerard might have suggested. I think in some of his in some of his work, and I'm just curious how you would how you would respond to that.
2: Mm. Yeah, I should. I'm a I'm a proud football fan myself, and of the Detroit Lions, which is even worse than the, than the, than the <laughs> Eagles. Um, well. Gerard would say, this goes back to the very beginning of the conversation, that I I think you're absolutely right, Shadi, that we have a lot of mechanisms in place that constrain um, violence and conflict. Um, You know, getting a Twitter mob or getting canceled on Twitter, uh, relatively speaking, is not that bad of a thing to have to endure compared to what might have happened to you a few hundred years ago. So, Girard said that our culture, uh, the formation of institutions and prohibitions, um, even sports, all of these things are mechanisms that, are, that came into existence in order to mitigate the most destructive effects of mimetic conflict and rivalry, right? And this is, this is a really important point. Like our, our institutions, um, are there to prevent conflict and they're important um, they're not perfect but these institutions serve a, a we, we rarely talk about them in terms of preventing um, mimesis but Gerard would say that's one of the things that they do he would even go so far as to say that perhaps even sports is a ritual that exists to prevent some form of conflict that we would have if it didn't exist so uh, you know you could even say if, if the NFL ceased to exist overnight maybe there'd be more violence and, and in fact that sort of did
1: happen uh by the way a couple of years ago you know so we you wait, know, it wait, didn't wait that is... okay wait wait just a second here that happened yeah I mean there were no games being played oh because of the pandemic in, the, in, in, in so, 2020 in... because because of the pandemic yeah but I mean that's a causation correlation issue. I mean no, we don't necessarily. And
0: yeah. there were spikes no, no. in I, crime I'm- everywhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So my 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 point is that he Gerard thought that cultural institutions and rituals and prohibitions were born, sort of out of a desire. To, to for self-preservation right that humanity is preserving itself from what used to happen which would be all out hobbesian wars of all against all memetic conflict and and scapegoats right in the horrific kind that that were very different than what happened to you so i'm sure so, i was making sort of a joke about the nfl or right yeah right? i know <laughs> uh, yeah no yeah it's not um, I'm not. I'm not making a real serious argument there, right? But you know, in general, he would consider sports as an institution that is maybe more important than we think it is.
0: <laughs> this is Shadi's next Atlantic Think piece. Now that he's discovering football, and he'll 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 do the sociological <laughs> study to figure figure out the correlations between crime and sports. No, but but so look, um, the 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 thing that that I keep coming to is uh you know luke i don't know i i'm, I'm a pessimist and and you know you even earlier said about people questioning free will i remember in an undergraduate i i took a, a class on free will and just came away just i don't know really unconvinced with everything that was that all the theorizing that that needed to be there for free will and honestly the way way the way i end up on it is that you know you really you can you can you can slice and dice that stuff really finely unless you really do believe in a, um, a soul uh, and define that as as an actor and just stop there. there, there you, you can't really, you know, I think, uh, get to an explanation of free will that makes sense at least I think rigorously. I've I've never been able to do it. Not that I'm a, you know, professional philosopher. I really delved more than a semester into this stuff, but that, that's, that's sort of something that I came away with and it's, that's, that's, um, well, in a way haunted me, but also shaped me ever, ever since that, that sort of thing. And so as a result, when I write and like when Shadi and I fight about stuff, um, it ends up being that I, I generally take what would be, I think, uh, charitably described as a sociological approach rather than an individualistic, moralistic approach to any problem. And so, you know, the the first part of your book and and that part of Gerard actually resonates quite a lot with me because I think it's a, it's a good theory of sociology. It tells us how groups work, how societies are structured, what you were just saying, institutions for mitigating violence, for uh, channeling violence, for socially useful ends. Um, an understanding of human psychology, of human group psychology, how these things interact. Um, but, uh, and you know, at the same time, I'm, 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 I say this far too frequently on the podcast, I'm not actually a sociopath. I, 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 uh, um, I, I understand that you have to behave and not even understand. I mean, I do behave as if I have free will. You can't, you can't exist in modern society without that, being operationally wired into your brain, even as you study things, study phenomena and and just conclude that that a lot of it boils down to these larger social phenomena. And so I guess that that gets me to sort of start pushing on the on the second part of the book, which is very optimistic, well, very optimistic, optimistic. I think optimistic in ways that that um, that I'm not sure I could follow you all the way on. Um, and it gets back to that question of of, free will and and you know how much how much can we transcend these these large social um, uh, forces uh these institutions these these habits um, these uh psychological human realities uh in order to uh, get out of it now look, I mean, I would say that obviously you know there are exceptional individuals that end up leading you have a chapter on leadership there that so leadership exists there's a way to to uh change course and make a difference if you will like i think on the margins to to reshape things but i guess my my question to you with this sort of long-winded wind up is how optimistic are you about really fundam- fundamental changes on this you you end up talking about you know that that uh you you had this uh that that capitalism was one way to try and sort of uh channel these forces into into a more productive thing but that that maybe we need something else to get us out of um uh this mimetic loop that we find ourselves in these forces that shape us and, and channel us and maybe
1: make us destructive in in, in ways Dimir, um damir um if, if i could just push you on this point yeah go before, ahead i mean isn't your objection a little bit deeper i mean i think one of maybe one of your potential issues with uh with the book and and maybe this way of thinking is you don't necessarily believe in self-improvement so you're very skeptical is that fair to say
0: (sighs) well i mean i it gets to what i was getting at with free will and I, I think that's a good way to put it is, is that it and, and this is, I guess, also the question of, of you know, to Luke, to you about about the, the power of will to sort of transcend these sorts of things. Is it just a question of awareness and then making a decision to break with something which then will have cascading effects that would be profound enough to take us out of the broad doom loop? I guess that's my question. Um.
2: So, sure. So, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great question, and uh, you know, just to um, put my cards on the table. I mean, this the, that I'm coming from a Christian worldview, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Gerard's much of Gerard's thinking on this topic, especially his initial sort of insight into mimetic desire was around conversion. Why do people have conversions, right? Why did people in first century Palestine radically alter their lives? Um, he, but he used conversion in a broad sense. He, he spoke about literary conversions. You know, why did, you know, you look at the early Dostoevsky versus the late, um, you know, something seemed to have happened to him. You have a much humble writer that seemed to, you know, understand that, you know, they're not good characters and bad, just sort of not good people and bad people, right? The line dividing good and evil cuts through the human heart. Um, what something happened to change mm-hmm. him, and he he describes it using this broad word conversion. Now, wh- why do people change? You know, um, it, you know, can, should that be attributed to sociological factors, to environmental factors? Um, why, why do people change, right? So I think that without, um, I mean, with, from a purely materialist kind of view of the world and the and the human person, um, I don't think, I think it's very difficult to square this, right? I mean, because you, you're right, you, you said you have to sort of posit something that goes beyond the material to really even begin to have a kind of conversation about the, about the will just in general, right? And, and to the extent that there's free will. Um, it doesn't make sense if we're operating in a sort of purely um, kind of uh, uh, instinctual basis, right? It seems like we, if you you know, we have to be able to transcend our instincts, whether that's through our intellect or whether it's through something else like grace from a Christian perspective. So, you know, Gerard would say that, that maybe that's what's responsible for the change in a person. It's, it's something, you know, supernatural. Um, interesting kind of you know, so so is transcendence possible is is change possible uh just recently this this is a striking example for me as I've been thinking about change and I've been thinking about this phrase of political atheism and and looking at the polarization of our country and you know how people can get trapped uh, people seem less open to change to changing their minds to uh, you know to marrying people of a different political party um, you just we're just not seeing it. I mean look at the difference between even the 1960s and today it's radically different right so why is that happening? And I was reading um I was reading the Inferno. I was reading Dante's Inferno over these last couple of weeks. And in Canto 10, this really interesting thing happens. So Dante comes to the sixth circle of hell and he's told by Virgil that these are the arch heretics. And You've got some arch heretics that are in this flaming sarcophagus. They're trapped in a tomb, burning up in flames for all eternity. right? And he said, these are the arch heretics that are in this tomb. And he said, they're Epicureans they don't believe in the immortality of the soul because they're so they're Epicureans that's all we know about them and then they start to engage in this discussion one one of them Farinata pops up from the coffin pops up from the tomb he recognizes Dante's Florentine accent and he said ah you you're from my city and then they have a little conversation and he recognizes Dante from being from the rival political party um, Farinata is a Ghibelline and Dante is a gulf and he recognizes him and he said ah your people were my father's rivals and my ancestors rivals and therefore you're my rival and he's sort of you know caught um and they just have a discussion about politics and he's still you know he uh he he died before Dante was even born so he's he's talking about things that happened a long time ago um and it's interesting because here they are having he's supposed to be a heretic well, they're not having a conversation about theology or religion at all They're just having a conversation about being from rival political factions. The connection there is, the the way that I read that, the heresy is precisely, and this is Dante, so he has this very mystic worldview, the heresy is precisely um, that he was trapped in an imminent uh, political framework and he didn't believe there was anything that transcended politics therefore or, or his political party right so it was an it was a disordered attachment and unwavering loyalty to a political political party that to be honest didn't even no, no longer existed in its current form by the time he and Dante are having this conversation he wouldn't have even recognized it if he had the ability to see the present which nobody in, in Dante's hell does they, they can't see the present so it was his unbelief his rejection of the belief that there was anything that transcended politics Politics, um, in other words, he believed all of his belief was in the politics as a solution for everything. And there, I there I think is an example of somebody. This kind of a stark example. Um, somebody who did not believe that there was it was even there was even a possibility of, of, of transcending, and therefore was kind of condemned to you know just just relive the same old political arg- arguments for forever. Um, but I, I, I bring that up because we, we did talk about we sort of you know you mentioned you know you have to what if you don't sort of uh, have a worldview in which there's something that transcends the material or the physical, then I think that that's the second half of the book, the, the transcend the, the transcending the mimetic loops the being able to make a decision that could be anti mimetic um, is much, it's much harder, if not impossible to get there. So I'm agreeing with you on that. And I think that we, we, there are some metaphysical presuppositions that are important when we're having these kinds of discussions.
1: I, okay. I, well, I, that, know, that just... would, um, that would well, make a strong case for, that would make a strong case for religion then in that religion, if religion is the only thing, or if we need religion to transcend mimetic desire, that's that's a very I mean that seems to me to be a pretty pretty profound point with serious implications that if mimetic desire is dangerous and has to be contr- controlled or constrained or channeled, but ultimately religion or religious institutions are an important part of how to do that, then we should we should want more religion and it leaves I mean it, it leaves non-believers in a pretty difficult spot if they in their own personal lives, want to overcome i mean what would i don't know maybe that's not your you're like hey hey atheists you're kind of fucked but i mean hopefully i mean hopefully there is an option for them but if there isn't then i think i'm just curious like what 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 are they supposed to do
2: well well, we're having sort of two now there's two different discussions right it's it's free will and you know there's a difference between somebody who's not religious um and somebody who, who who doesn't um Believe that they have a free will, right? So these are, these are two different things. Um, I think, well, the, the, the Gerard Gerard's ultimate answer as a Christian, and I'm one too, um, is that ol- the only way to ultimately escape comp- is—I mean, the Christian answer is there's only one person in the world who has not been subject to negative, destructive mimesis, and it's Christ, and He's the way out ultimately of this. So. That is the Christian answer to the question. Do I believe that um, people that are not religious um, are caught up forever condemned to cycles of destructive mimesis? Um, I don't think so, because if you, if, if, if you have free will, there are still... You can still act in accord with the true, the good, the beautiful. You can still act rationally. You can still recognize when you're caught up in a uh, in, in mimetic contagion or a destructive, negative mimetic cycle. All of those things are still possible. Gerard's response would simply be that they're they're not enough. Um, well, they're not enough for salvation, right? But they're not enough to keep you. Uh, preserved forever, but there's certainly plenty that you can do to not just succumb to every mimetic provocation that comes up.
1: Amir, there's hope for you yet.
0: Well, no, I mean, I'm looking forward to my uh, seat in the 10th circle. I mean, when you were speaking there, I was like, oh man, oh man. I wasn't speaking
2: directly to you, Demir, I promise. But I, I
0: but I, but I, but that's how, that's, that. I understood it that way. And at least I am go back to my Dante and, and, uh, examine my future digs. No, but, but let me, let me, let me just ask you, um, it was really helpful what you said there, uh, about the, the, you know, the, the Christian roots of that. But so, you know, just pulling back on sort of like, call it, Christian Sociology, uh, or, or at least that kind of view, how far—especially when you say that, that Christ is the figure that, 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 you know, really can break this cycle. Um, and, and I think maybe that's what I detected in, in part two, is that there's a kind of hopefulness, and this is where, you know, I have trouble following, uh, is not following understanding, just sort of following, the, following along with you is uh, what really we're talking about is at that point, you know, to break a lot of this mimetic stuff is to break um, a lot of the defining features of what forms uh, global, call it geopolitical reality. States, um, conflicts between states, uh, uh, citizenship, i.e. exclusion of non-citizens, of other people. Really, it, it's what, what I did feel you were driving at, and, and maybe this is unfair, and you would correct me now, uh, but that there is hope for a kind of uh, global humanity, like a global community. That, that you know, that, that a lot of the stuff you're describing in part one that fundamentally shapes our, our, our lived reality, our lived geopolitical reality, uh, is toxic, and, and one, one might hope to transcend it. How hopeful are you?
2: I'm um, I'm more pessimistic than I've been in a um, in a long time, right? Just in the in the course of my life, Um, because it seems like we're 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 headed down a path where negative, destructive mimesis is not only accepted and tolerated, but actually rewarded. You know, in in many kinds, in many cases, rewarded, Um, even by people. Who oh, many people? I mean, some of the worst offenders, in fact, right? Are 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 Christian and religious, right? That's the that's the the, the challenge here, right? So, um, I, I I do think that at least becoming aware of uh, I I wouldn't make the leap to say that I think some kind of global order of of you know humanity living peacefully is is I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, if ever, but if, even if we just look in, in our sort of like na- national, um, American politics, um, kind of the rise of, of, you know, the, this negative partisanship, I think Gerard gives us a, a, a deeper layer to understand that with, um, just seeing the mechanisms, the, 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 destructive mechanisms and sort of the scapegoating politics at work, being able to see it and call it what it is, I think can, lead us, can can lead to progress. I, I, I truly do believe that, right? I don't think we're condemned to just sort of an all-out war, but we need to be able to live with people that want different things than we do. And as best as I can understand it, that's what a democracy is, is that there are, there are mechanisms in place to accept that not everybody wants all of the same things that I want, right? And, and we need to strengthen the systems and the institutions that help us live with people that want different things than we do. And I'm not, um, you know, I, I don't know if we, uh, in certainly not suggesting that we need to, um, you know, rethink um, our political, all of our political foundations based on a deep dive into Rene Girard, but I do think that he can shed some light on some of what's, going wrong um in in this sort of runaway uh, mimetic rivalry that we're seeing that again I've, I've never seen it be rewarded the way that it is now at least in in my relatively short lifetime that's and that that to me is concerning
1: shadi the problem okay. here for you is democracy i don't know i think uh, yeah yeah it's, sorry i thought you were going to say something <laughs> so no, in, no one thing i i well sorry demir
0: no no i'm just saying i i think that this is the prompt here is democracy for you i'm i'm i you know it's it's i how about this How it is how, like how what, about, what this what luke a question just to, said
1: really resonates like this is well no but a big but, but part
0: that's, hmm. it's, maybe it's a question for both of you then is, is is uh is democracy meant to transcend uh mimesis or a means of just managing it and can it even function without it um, you know, I, it's, it, this also gets to the sort of question of the, the individual actor and, um, and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, choice. I mean, ultimately, uh, parties and, uh, and politics, I mean, we can, we can rue the fact that they operate that the, the way they do and maybe idealize some kind of politics that exists where people are able to transcend these, uh, forces that, that push them together and, 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 sort of heard maybe, but ultimately it's, it's at the core of democracy and it's what, what allows it to function. It's, it's call it, you know, mobilizing consent and all sorts of things. Um, you know, to, to, to really transcend that, you know, then democracy, which I guess some people idealize is this idea that, uh, you know, people unencumbered by these forces could log into some portal, and just, uh, take polls on, on policy issues. And then, you know, you'd aggregate those preferences and, you know, that's how it'd be done. But that's, that's actually not democracy. It never has been, uh, representative democracy is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Go on.
1: Not all mimetic desire is bad though. And I think it's fine if democracy, um, accommodates and channels mimetic desire because there are some things that we should desire and i think luke would probably agree actually i'm sure he would because he says this um family community faith this is where social norms and modeling become quite important for the survival of civilization you want people to look to these more constructive desires what i think luke calls uh, thick desires versus thin So that's all that's all good. Now, it's up to the constituents in a democracy to decide what desires they want to pursue. But there's nothing inherently bad about pursuing desires. It's only a question of which desires we prioritize over others. And I don't think it I don't think it'd be right to say that authoritarian societies don't involve mimesis. If anything, they involve the scapegoating mechanism in a much more destructive manner so it's not as if democracy magnifies these negative aspects but it channels the negative aspects that will o- it channels and institutionalizes the negative aspects that will always be with us because we are flawed mere mortals right to i mean does that resonate demir or? It, it
0: resonates i i guess i guess where 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 i'm pushing at this is um you know um my my feeling from hearing luke talk about uh the mechanism by which ideally we transcend the doom loop that we're in and all of this negativity uh also implies to some extent a different kind of democracy i wouldn't say it transcends democracy that's not fair luke jump in whenever you know i don't i feel like we're talking about you when you're right here but (laughs) you know what i mean it's it's uh it's you know i i don't know help us unpack that because because it seems to be that 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 democracy properly understood is very much of the of the here and now and embedded in in um, society as it is, not as it we might hope to transcend it,
2: yeah, I don't think the goal um, is necessarily that to to transcend democracy. Um, certain things, uh, I think you know, Gerard would argue that. Technology helps is it, one of these things that helps to diffuse uh, mimetic desire. Um, markets help to diffuse mimetic desire. You know, we're not converging in all of the same things. We can, you know, um, the, these things help us to transcend the f- things that might otherwise result into um, major conflicts. No, no longer do. Right. Um, instead, what I think might be happening <clears throat> is we've sort of reached a place where the the, the mimetic rivalry is, is happening at the level level of relatively abstract ideas, um, more and more abstract ideas. Um, you know, we're having all kinds of conversations on identity we do we, it doesn't seem like uh, this is the big this is the big thing. I mean there are certain we can't live in a country where we all want completely like have radically different ideas about what we want. It does seem like at the level of thick desires or something we have to have some shared agreement about you know what it means to be a person and and you know what is 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 do all people seek happiness? I mean some some basic level we have to have some agreement there but it seems that we are we are having conversations about the when all when all of the things we're talking about are completely abstract, more and more abstract at least the mimetic rivalry can sort of continue ad nauseum and and almost infinitely and it it almost seems like we need something to ground discussions in and it's not that we i'm not uh i haven't thought a lot about the way that's why i love talking to to the two of you i'd like people to engage with my work and with gerard's work that that have thought a lot more about democracy and political institutions than i have but i would say not to transcend democracy but that may be transcended in its current form or that democracy may need to evolve to the different world that we live in Mm. okay
1: that's helpful i i I didn't want to just um interject with a point of clarification on technology if i understand you correctly you're saying that technology at least in theory from gerard's perspective should diffuse memetic rivalry it seems to me that the exact opposite has happened that technology makes us much more aware of what other people want and what we should want um in their image and so forth i mean that's more or less like how twitter and instagram operate it, you know, I, I don't use Instagram a lot, but from what I understand, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of emetic desire there, especially in terms of, um, beauty and appearance and so forth. So I'm curious, you know, uh, technology you distinction.
2: Yeah, let me make a distinction there. So he, he was um, described by one of his best friends as being one of the most ambivalent um, men in, in in the world, and that he always sort of saw that you know this, the two sides. So he would say that technology both diffuses mimesis and exacerbates it. And and let me just explain what I mean by that. So in other words, it's creating. Uh, lots of mimesis. You have a 13, 14 year old kid who's now exposed to millions of models of desire on a device that fits in the palm of their hand. So in that sense, there's, there's drowning in mimetic models and mimetic desire, and it's creating more and more of it. It is diffusing it in the sense that there's always another model. And that you know, people are not necessarily usually fixating on on one and going and, and you know, fighting the duel in the street. Um, they 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 just find new models. So it, it, the mimetic desire, in a sense, is um, is is we're dissipating ourselves with all of the different models of desire that we have, and it's it's causing us to it's causing. The mimetic rivalry did not escalate because it's being diffused across more across more people. So it's you could think of it as instead of um, instead of um, escalating small conflicts, we just have uh, millions of, of even smaller ones. <laughs> so it's not it's not necessarily a, he's not necessarily saying it's a good thing. He's just saying that it's affecting our relationship and the way that mimesis works. Okay,
1: that's you, helpful. You know, that makes uh, sense you know, to me.
0: I'll say one thing uh Luke, you know in defense of, of my um my godless self on this the part that that in part two really did resonate with me and um and you know i mean is 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 hopeful maybe as a as a way out, maybe not all the way to transcendence um but towards you know uh, being less feeling less beset by the modern world i think was the 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 part where you it's the chapter on uh disruptive empathy and it's it's where you you um you lay out in sort of um you know motivational patterns i think is the, the section where you talk about that um uh you you single out explore master comprehend and express and you know i mean i i think as a as a set of guiding principles, maybe even a set of things that one might want to teach one's children as they're growing up. Uh, you also talk about Montessori at some point as a, you know, educational model to really encourage this kind of thing in, in kids. Um, I think that is powerful in any case is is to, to get at that curiosity. And, and I, you know, just speaking, uh, you know, uh, from a personal perspective, I've, I really have, uh, largely because I started this new job, but, but even before that, I was really pulling away from Twitter and, and finding that, that the stuff that, that I find, you know, uh, it's not happiness. Happiness is not the right world, but fulfillment is, I think, is indulging that, is indulging, giving myself space to be curious, uh, to, find something difficult and challenging and, and then just try and, and, and figure it out. Uh, and then, and then also just sort of explaining it, but also it's almost the process of explaining it to myself and that, 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 you know, and then, you know, and that's writing for me in any case, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of getting stuff down on paper. Um, and that to me is fulfilling in a way that stands in sharp contradistinction to, Life lived online. I think that's that's the the narrow way to put it. I, I did find, you know, for all the sort of uh, I think uh, what I was laying out earlier, where, where I have trouble following you, that resonated in the book in a big way with with my life recently. And I, I you know, I don't know. Um, just throwing that out there, I don't know what uh, how, how you relate and think about that.
2: Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that. And uh, that's, this is sort of what, what Shadi mentioned. Um, I I speak about in the book, the difference between thin desires and thick desires. And it sort of brings us to a a discussion, which, um, would be too long for us to have a philosophical discussion about the self and what is the self. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it seems like, you know, we, we live in a world where many people, um, Are are trying to figure out who they are, especially young people, you know, in in liquid modernity, to use a term from Sigmund Baumont, right? Um, There doesn't seem to be any stability. Right, like sort of continuity of the self. And when I'm speaking and writing about thick desires, I'm speaking about the kind of desires that are more stable and have continuity to to them, as opposed to thin desires, which are just sort of a highly mimetic, reactive, responsive to the people that I'm I'm seeing on on social media, on Instagram. Maybe I want to be like them in some way. Um, Those are those are generally thin desires. You know, we have this expression in English, you know, I feel like I'm losing myself, Um, you know, people use this expression all the time, I I felt like I've, you know, I've I've lost myself, right, and the, the, the whole impetus for that book is that in my late 20s, I felt like I had lost myself, like, what am I, what am I even doing? You know, do I even, if I fulfill all of these goals, am I even going to be, like, I, I've, I've forgotten the things that even bring me joy. I haven't done them in six, seven, eight years. I forgot about, I've like lost something essential about myself. So I use the word self-possession and thick desires to describe a kind of core um, where when we're operating uh, in a highly mimetic way, we... If we're sensitive to what that core is, or what that sort of self is, or what those thick desires are, we can we can normally we normally realize it if we're if we're not too too far gone or too far down the path of being like having completely dissipated all of our all of our. Um, sort of core motivation and core desires. So that's, that's what I was trying to get at there. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to get into a philosophical discussion and rehash uh, thousands of years of discussion about what constitutes the self. Um, but I, it is relevant to this discussion about mimesis and mimetic desire. Cause I think there are a lot of people that are operating outside of themselves. Um, mm. and you know, people. I've spoken to a lot of people that do change their relationship with uh, social media, with Twitter, with the, the kind of uh, political discourse, and do discover a sense of satisfaction, relief, uh, freedom, self possession that they simply didn't have before.
1: Great. So there's a fi- as we wrap up, there's a final thing I want to bring up, and hopefully it won't open too too large a can of worms, but. As I zoom out and I think about Gerard in the kind of broader universe of philosophers and philosophy, it makes me think that a lot of the newly popular philosophers today in the current moment, they sort of lead us in a right-wing direction. Maybe that wasn't their intent. I don't know a lot about Gerard's like, partisan or political orientation. But when I think about... um sort of the problems of liberal modernity a lot of it comes back to this issue of choice and desire that liberal societies elevate the idea of personal desire that we should follow our truth even if it's not particularly good from a sort of objective normative standpoint and that we should there's a sense that we should open ourselves up to as many experience possibilities and desires as possible there's so much of life to kind of bite into and when i read gerard or when i read really um you know a lot of what i read today and even just non-philosophers people who are in the self-help space and i don't mean self-help pejoratively i mean people who are focused trying to tell readers how to improve their lives. And I think you hear about Oliver Berkman and his book, um, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I think there's a real move to saying that the only way to have real fulfillment is by very actively and consciously constraining our choices. And oftentimes religion or spirituality or God can be an important part of that because religion provides structures that help us reduce our choices and help us refocus away from thin desire towards thick desire. And I'm just curious, like if that if you've to what extent you've thought about the kind of political implications, but and maybe it's just because I'm very much in the world of critiques of liberalism and looking at why so many people today are just instinctively unhappy and unfulfilled. And I think it all, oftentimes, maybe not always, but oftentimes comes back to this fundamental issue about choice, freedom, and constraint. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I, you know, it's this idea that um, you know, I, I can be whoever I want to be. Um, and whatever I want is, is you know, th- is therefore worthy of being pursued and I have a right to pursue it, um, is, is wrong. I mean, first of all, I can't be whoever I want to be. You know, I can't be an NBA basketball player. I'm five, nine, and I'm not very good at basketball. You know, I mean, there's, a, there's just a lot of things that I, that I can't be whoever I want to be. So, you know, just having a, a, an understanding of, of the human person and in my own limitations and boundaries, right, is 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 the, like a first step in that process. And you know, I tell my students, like they, they, many of them almost have an idea of desire. We're talking about desires. That desires are, you know, how do I how do I know what desires to pursue and what desires not to pursue? I mean, I teach at a Catholic university, so I can say. Um, you know, if that desire is violates the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, very simple things, right? Um, don't kill, don't lie, then that's probably a desire that you shouldn't pursue. I mean, it's not some of this we just have to have. But, but you know, it, we, we, so I can have that discussion in my classroom, but it, that's, I, I guess, on, a, on the broader level as a democracy, like what sort of core sort of truce that we believe in as, as a society and that's I guess it's a question that I have um, in terms of the the, the limitations of, of my own desires and uh, whether I should be able to do whatever I want right um, and this is where you know the, the, uh, the sort of a naive conception of libertarianism just doesn't just doesn't hold up right I mean we we, we, we need we we need more. G- Gerard would would I think he he asked the question and I think w- that raised similar questions to Tocqueville when he sort of looked surveyed you know the American landscape and wondered kind of what would happen to uh, desires as there was uh, as there was more equality and sort of everybody was sort of free to everybody could take everybody else as as a model of desire. Um, and, you know, what, what would sort of happen in this, this highly egalitarian kind of society. And, he, he did, he, of course, he never used the words mimetic desire or mimetic rivalry. But if I'm reading him correctly, he, he seems to actually be wondering what would happen in a more mimetic society where everybody was looking to everybody else as, as their mediators of desire. And, you know, Girard distinguished between two very different kinds of mediators of desire, external ones and internal ones. And he would argue that today in, uh, in America in 2023, almost everybody is an internal mediator of desire to everybody else. Um, you know, we all come into conflict, conflict, we're all on the same social media platforms. I can even provoke a response from the president of the United States on Twitter if I, if I try. You know, that's weird and it's it's it just it creates a a very different dynamic in today's world that i think Gerard would would wonder well what is that actually doing to our democracy
1: and how right wing is that as a so i'm just you know on not to put you on the spot but do do you do you agree that the implications tend to lean further right and i i just be curious if you have a sense of this broader move towards constraint as an operating principle. And we can also debate whether or not constraint is like a right-wing idea. And you mentioned libertarianism, which, you know, which is about removing, obviously, certain constraints, a lot of constraints, and is on the right side of the spectrum. Um, but obviously, the idea of following your own truth and fulfilling desire, even if it's thin, I would associate that more with, um, let's say, left-leaning discourses.
2: Well, I, there's it, it's interesting because that that particular aspect of Girard's thinking and mimetic theory, um, when we're talking about constraints, we're talking about some of the the dangers of kind of you know un, unconstrained liberalism um, that I, that does have more right more right leaning implications, right for sure. Uh, on the flip side, and this is just an interesting thing to note, the uh, Gerardian, uh, the international community of Girardian scholars that that meets every year, uh, is pretty left leaning, and you know they 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 see how mimetic theory has a lot to say um, about um, the scapegoats that are created. I mean, think about you know QAnon. Think about you know um, the the LGBTQ and trans community and sort of the the the, the, the hatred and the scapegoating. That so there's there's. It's really a bit, it's not quite that simple, right? Yeah. There's parts of mimetic theory that I think make um, right leaning arguments and other parts of it that make left leaning arguments. And I think that uh, Peter Thiel and his association with Girard has made the association. In many people's minds, that oh, Gerard is some kind of a, of a right-wing thinker. In my opinion, that's that's not true. Even if kind of the the Tocqueville stuff that I mentioned would seem to argue for more sort of traditionally conservative beliefs.
1: Okay, well that that's a great point to end on and a good clar- uh, point of clarification. Uh, thanks so much, Luke. Um, there's so much more we could talk about because as we've saying mimetic desire applies to so many facets of our lives and you know to our dear listeners definitely check out this book uh wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life will include a link to the book in the show notes and you can also follow luke on twitter and um will include um a link a link to his online presence because as bad as an online presence can be
0: yeah, follow him and 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 emulate him uh, in the most mimetic way you possibly can, because it's probably good for you.
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed.
2: Luke, thanks a lot. Thanks this a lot, great. Luke. Great to have hey, you. Thank, thanks so much, guys. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks.